Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Meet the Barrister series for the Raising the Bar podcast with me, Alana Hughes. In the Meet the Barrister series, I speak to a different guest barrister in each episode and discuss their path to the bar and their practice, as well as any other interesting topic of discussion that pops up. The aim of this series is to demonstrate that the bar is not a one-size-fits-all sort of profession, as it is sometimes wrongly assumed to be. Barristers come from a wide variety of backgrounds and specialise in many different areas of law. There is something for everyone. Before I introduce my guest, I just want to note that this episode is being recorded remotely. I am at my home and my guest is in theirs due to social distancing measures in the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. And there may therefore be a slight reduction in audio quality in this episode. We hope you won't mind. My guest today is a military barrister with the Royal Navy and door tenant at King's Bench Godolphin Chambers based in Plymouth. Lieutenant Commander John Paul Fitzgibbon is a senior rank warfare officer in the Royal Navy and trained to become a barrister after completing the GDL and BPTC between 2016 and 2018. He also has a degree in maritime technology. Upon completion of his criminal pupillage, John Paul returned to uniformed service as a military barrister specialising in criminal and international law before all courts in the United Kingdom, including the court-martial. John Paul has kindly agreed to come on the podcast today to discuss his journey to the bar and his unique practice as a military barrister. John Paul, thanks so much for joining me. How are you? Very well indeed. Thank you for having me, Alana. Now, John Paul, you are not just any ordinary barrister, you are a military barrister. And that means that our conversation today will hopefully be of significant interest to anyone interested in military law and practice as a military barrister. Now, I know that you don't necessarily have to be in the military before becoming a barrister. That's something that you'll be able to explain to our listeners later in the podcast. But in your case, you actually were in the military before qualifying for quite a long time, actually, some 15 years. So just to start off from the very beginning then, what was it that made you join the Royal Navy? Um, I, I come from the northeast of England um, from a fairly humble background, from a, a council estate, in fact. And I think I was always inspired by the sea. My, my great uncle told me stories of how he sunk the Bismarck um, in the Second World War. And it, it was much later in life I found that he was a, a gunner's loader and not the uh, the person that fired the shot. Um, but I always thought about joining the Navy, and, and I had a real drive to um, to command a ship myself, and that's what I set out to do. And what sort of uh, activities and experience did your military career prior to becoming a barrister involve? Uh, quite quite wide-ranging, really. So my I'm a warfare officer. We're, we're the officers who drive ships and navigate them, fight them, command them. Um, and my very first very first job was in the Caribbean, intercepting uh, cocaine and heroin shipments coming over to the UK. Um, so that job involved boarding other vessels and, and stopping drugs getting from one place there. Um, thereafter, I navigated a mine hunter. Uh, I navigated three in the end, predominantly in the Persian Gulf, so I spent time in Iraq and, and all of the Northern Arabian Gulf. 
before navigating a flagship HMS Bulwark, which went around most of the world, actually. And how then did it come about that you decided to train as a barrister within the Navy? Well, I'd always been interested in law, and my mother worked for barristers' chambers up in the northeast. She was an office manager for one of their satellite offices. And the barristers there were always very kind to me and, and talked to me about what they did, predominantly crime. And it really took my fancy. But if I'm frank, when I was younger, I didn't get the grades from school and, and college that would have got me anywhere near a pupillage, really, let alone bar course. So I just put it to the back of my mind, thought I'd concentrate on my career in the Navy. Um, and I found some years, some years into that that I could train to be a barrister with the Navy. And I suppose for listeners who maybe don't know anything about the process, how how does that transition from naval officer to barrister happen within the Navy? Is it as a case of that you just go to a superior and express your interest or are you approached or is there an application process? So it's, um, it's an application process. And to, to go back to some basics, there's a number of branches in the Navy. There's logistics officers, engineers and warfare officers like myself. Predominantly from the past, it was always logistics officers who were allowed to, to study law and nobody else got a look in really. I was one of the first warfare officers to be selected. But I explained to to my boss and then to, to a much more senior person that I thought there was some some scope for an officer with warfighting experience to train to be a barrister and therefore be the person advising on the warfare aspects or the legal aspects of warfare. And somehow I convinced them and, and they agreed. So they put me forward for the selection process, which is relatively grueling. It's the best part of a week spent at the Service Prosecuting Authority, which is our independent version of the CPS, I suppose, for the armed forces. And during that week where we were given a case file that they'd made up and told in in broad terms how to do a case analysis and expected to do one, how to do an opening speech to the prosecutor and then then we'd do one, and witness handling and closing speeches. So over that week, in front of some fairly senior barristers, we were put to our paces to see if we had the aptitude to be an advocate, essentially. And thereafter, it went on to, to interviews and whatnot. And, and this was prior to having any experience in law, so no yeah, degree, absolutely. no yeah. training, just straight in at the deep end, just a, a, an aptitude test, exactly as you say. Yeah, it's pretty daunting, but very, very well run. The the head of the SPA is a, a QC, and, and there's some very senior barristers there, and, and they taught you everything you needed in advance, but it was a fairly quick introduction, and then just see how you get on, on your feet, and I suppose, as with anything, they're not expecting a barrister. They're expecting somebody who has some potential for training. But it, it was a really good course and a really good assessment. I suppose just as a point of interest, that that's important to note that, especially for students who are listening to this podcast, maybe preparing to come along to Grays for scholarship interviews later this year, hoping to commence the BPTC or the GDL next year. Uh, barristers that sit on those panels are not looking for ready-made barristers they're not expecting you to be able to behave or act or um, speak like a barrister all that they want to see is that you can stand up on your feet and articulate an argument that makes sense that it's logical and that you have just a bit of a knack for for the profession so I suppose that's very similar to to the experience that you had then definitely and I think these a bit like the scholarship interviews and, and like my assessment process um 
I think it's good for students to know that those that are looking at them are very experienced themselves and, and they can tell if you're putting on an act. So it's all about doing what you've just said, but being yourself, because being a barrister and being an effective barrister is all about being yourself and not trying to be somebody else, in my opinion. And so having practiced now as a military barrister for for a little while, what would you say are the main traits that make a successful military barrister that might be slightly different to the traits that would be expected of a barrister in private practice? I think specifically from the military side, it's experience. So as you alluded to at the start, I had roughly 13 years experience in in the Navy before I did any legal training. And when you're applying the law to a warfare environment or peacekeeping operations or humanitarian aid, I think it really helps to not just look at it from an academic standpoint, but to apply your experience as a warfighter or, or having been involved in those operations. And I think that's what I brought to the bar um, in my role as a military lawyer. And just before we move on to talk about what your practice actually involves, I just wanted to ask about your pupillage. So you completed a purely criminal pupillage in Plymouth. And is it the case that the Royal Navy themselves don't provide the pupillage or is it always the case that you have to find pupillage within private practice? So, uh, I mean, it's a very good point and, and we're very fortunate, actually. So the Royal Navy doesn't provide the pupillage. Uh, it has to go through private practice. And chambers that offer offer those pupillages register specifically to make sure that it's a fair process. But the Navy's got a long-standing relationship with quite a few sets in London where we're pretty much guaranteed a place. But if we wanted to be outside of London, which I did, having studied in London for two years, I wanted to be back in, in Cornwall with my family. I, I had to apply myself and the Navy just backed it. But KBG were really accommodating. And so... Did you enjoy the criminal pupillage in, in the sense that you were then thinking, oh gosh, I have to now, you know, leave this criminal world behind and move back into military law? Or was it great to be able to get that experience of, you know, ordinary practice in a sense before moving into your specialism? I mean, I loved it. I, I absolutely love crime. And, and I think it's the people element of crime um, that does it for me. So I, I became a daughter as a KBG so that I could keep that up and, and one day come back when I leave the Navy some years from now. The, the Navy doesn't insist that we do a purely criminal pupillage. Uh, and a friend of mine last year did a, a common law pupillage. But because of the three services, we are the only ones that will defend at court martial. It, it helps to have a criminal pupillage and, and a criminal background or criminal law background. And, and that's why I opted for, for a purely criminal pupillage. Yes. So actually, just in my research before this conversation, I, I read that. So the RAF and the army will often bring in civilian defence barristers, but the Royal Navy have in-house defence barristers. Yeah. So the three services each give people to the service prosecuting authority for a period of two, three years. Um, so we've got Army, Navy, Air Force and some civilian prosecutors there. But in the Navy, if you're not at the at the Service Prosecuting Authority, then when a, a court-martial comes up, our service people, but only Navy and Marines, only the Naval Service, are allowed to ask for a service barrister. And then we provide our services free of charge. The Army and the RAF never do that. Now, 
I must admit, I'm not entirely sure why, but because our training is paid for by the Navy, uh, I think it's only right that when we can, we offer our services to defend our people. But the Army and the Air Force, they, they don't do that. And just what you touched on there, just in terms of the Navy paying for your training, was that a, a vital aspect of being able to access the bar for you? It, it really was. It was critical, actually. I mean, had I been good enough to be a barrister when I was younger, which I, I don't think I was mature enough, really, um, but, but had I been, I wouldn't have had the money and I'd have, I'd have relied on a scholarship. But coming to the bar later on in life with two children as well, it, it would have been impossible to say to my family, look, that there's no income for me for a couple of years whilst I go and, and learn my trade. So if it wasn't for the Navy sponsoring me, I just don't think it would have been accessible at the time. And how did the training work for you? Were you able to take a full break away from, from your service duties or were you still expected to sort of touch in and out and almost continue on part time? No, they, they were quite specific because the training I suppose costs so much and, and the investment is high my my only job over the last three years um, of the three years of training and pupillage was go to UDL do well go to bar course do well go to pupillage pass and it, that was my job I, I did a little bit more I always like to try and further the navy and show people what we do but um but essentially I just became a student who was sponsored through and so now just to, to sort of discuss what your practice actually involves, for those listening who maybe have never come across a military barrister before, what does a military barrister barrister's practice involve? It's, it's incredibly wide ranging. My, my current job, I'm a, a regional legal advisor for the, the Western region. So any unit that comes from a Western naval base or any of the reserve units in the West if there's a discipline matter or an employment law matter or administrative matter, they come to me for legal advice. Then I spend periods of time, such as this week, where I'm the duty lawyer. And if anything happens overnight, and it can be anything from, again, discipline up to an operational matter where a plane might be overflown by an enemy aircraft or a drone or, or they need advice on what they can do. I'll be the on-call lawyer who will get that phone call at three in the morning to, to provide rapid, effective operational advice to the commander in the field. And just, I mean, just as you're speaking, it's, it's just coming into my mind, you know, obviously in terms of a legal question or issue being presented to sort of an ordinary barrister in private practice, they'll look to LexisNexis or they'll look to Westlaw to find precedents and to try and research the area and find the answer. Where do you find the answers for these questions? I mean, these these issues that may seem to arise, is there a, a book or a resource that you're able to go to? Or do you just sort of have to use your intuition and your experience to, to make the right decision? It's mainly intuition and experience. That There are plenty of books out there and, and there's certain publications that only we have access to. Um, mm -hmm. And by that, I mean people in the military, not just lawyers. But... When you're asked something that, that's developing very quickly, I think it, it's imperative that we rely on our experience. And uh, that can be it can be so wide ranging. You know, we're looking at the laws of armed conflict, the Geneva Conventions, a whole gamut of international law. And, and you know, of all the legal sectors, international law is, is pretty theoretical in some ways. So there's an awful lot of publications we can use. But often if you get that call as a duty lawyer, 
you need to make a quick decision and and actually it has to be the right one. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like an enormous responsibility to make decisions and give advice about things that are as, as serious and can have huge consequences all over the world. It, it is. I mean, I suppose I should caveat it with uh, if we look at Iraq and Afghanistan and and operations that are live, they will have embedded legal teams with them who are just doing this day and night mm-hmm. um, and, and are real experts, real experts in this field. When we're duty, we're, we're dealing with uh, the, the real emergent threat when there's nobody else there. But I, I think that, that comes back to what we said earlier. One of the bigger traits that I, I think I bring or have brought is is years of experience in a warfare background. And it's just applying the legal knowledge to that experience to get the right answer for, for the person that needs it. And obviously just over the past, the recent sort of past few years, more so the past few months with, with lockdown and with COVID, well-being at the bar has been a massive conversation. And I suppose just as you say, you know, that you're, you work as duty lawyer from time to time and you're sort of alert 24-7 then during that time. How do you balance your work-life balance in, in, in the sense that are you always working or do you take like sort of weeks and months off at a time? I'm like many barrister terrible at taking time off we get we get a very healthy leave package with the with the armed services very very good indeed really but i'm a bit of a workaholic and i think that's probably common across the bar i think well-being at the bar and and how we're pushing that is excellent because for too long we've all been people that will just push and push and push for our clients and not take any time for ourselves i'd say that's something i'm still learning every day and just in the sense that for a lot of people, when you get called to the bar, say, for example, in England and Wales, that's where you are qualified and you're not qualified in any other jurisdiction. And there's not really an opportunity to travel elsewhere unless you go and get cross-qualified or called somewhere else. But with the Royal Navy and military service in general, is there a great opportunity to travel a lot with your work? Very much so. I've I've been to most of the world in the past 13 or 15 years now. Uh, apart from the Far East, I've been almost everywhere. And most of that wasn't as a lawyer, but we have lawyers deployed in most parts of the world. We have lawyers on exchange in different jurisdictions, America, Australia, Bahrain, um, all, all over the place. And it's one of the reasons a lot of people join the forces is for the opportunities and the time away. And, and it certainly presents that that option. And I suppose just I know that you, you've mentioned that the work you do is just so varied and wide ranging. But are there particular issues that arise that you particularly enjoy working on, like certain certain aspects of your work that you, that you love? Crime is definitely it for me. I, um, I'm fortunate that I'm in a, a job that allows me to defend quite regularly. And, and that's been everything from a service-only charge of fighting, which you, is something you don't get in, in the civilian criminal justice system, all the way up to uh, a rape, which I asked one of, one of the more senior tenants at Chambers to lead me on. And, and I really enjoy the criminal side because it, it's all about people. And, and I think it's a, a major part of being, being an officer is getting to know people and how to get the best out of them. That actually transfers pretty well into the bar because you're trying to persuade a jury or get the best out of a witness or keep your client calm and, and able to give his best evidence, his or her best evidence. 
And, and I think that skill and, and that experience has really helped me. And so these would be crimes alleged against service personnel alleged to have happened whilst on service or just are service personnel subject to court martial even when they're not in service at that particular time when something is alleged? Yeah, absolutely. So it's an interesting point when I teach young sailors, wherever we go in the world, the UK criminal law and the service law goes with them. Mm. Um, now, if, if a sailor, if a sailor, marine or soldier or airman does something wrong in the UK on a night out when he's not on duty, quite often this, the Home Office Police will retain jurisdiction. It will go through the normal criminal justice system. But if there's trouble between a service person and another service person, we'll retain jurisdiction and we will we will prosecute that matter. And just in terms of the, the procedural technicalities of, of court-martial, is, is there a jury as normal or how does that work? No, it's very, it's very different. And I, um, in fact, I'm hoping to write a little piece for Greyer in the future for anybody who, who might be interested in defending in a court-martial. So there's a judge advocate who is a circuit judge. They have the same role as, as a circuit judge does, apart from when it comes to sentencing. So we have a board of between three and five people, depending on the seriousness of the offence. Only a simple majority is required to find someone guilty or otherwise. And and if somebody is found guilty and it comes to sentencing, it's the board that sentence. So so there are some quirks to our system. The the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court have allowed that to stay the way it is, mainly because, unlike a jury of one's peers, a military board understands the military pretty well. And we understand why a, a certain offence, a certain behaviour needs dealing with in a certain way. Um, and that's, I suppose, why we keep our system the way it is. So do you mean that the sentencing options are very specific and relevant to military absolutely. personnel in terms of disciplinaries rather than community service, for example, or something like that? Uh, absolutely. And uh, community service isn't, um, it, it just doesn't work with service life. It's very rare that somebody will be allowed to to stay in a service if they get a community penalty. They'll normally be dismissed. Mm. Um, but our our service detention, which some people might think of as prison, it's, in many ways is harder. Um, but we count that as a community equivalent and it, it's very effective. And those that are sent to service detention often never reoffend. And after service detention, are you so are you immediately dismissed at that point, or can you come back? It, it all depends, actually. There, there's some people. The maximum time I think anyone can stay in service detention is two years. Okay. Um, and somebody that's in that amount of time would be dismissed invariably. But the vast majority of people that go to detention, we aim to keep, and it, it's got a huge rehabilitative effect. So it, it is very important, though, that those procedures and practices are specific to military personnel because. As, you, as you've alluded to, the normal way that things work in the normal criminal justice system, just it just wouldn't work. Yeah, it, it, it is very specific. And I think on the whole, rightly so. We, we expect a lot of our people. We train them hard. We expect them to be disciplined. And, and if they fall foul of something, we look at it in a slightly different way than a Crown Court or a Magistrate's Court would. But other, other slight differences are our summary trials, our summary hearings, or equivalent of magistrates, deal with um, what would a range of anything from criminal behaviour 
up to uh, or down to administrative action where somebody might be late for work and they'll be prosecuted by the commanding officer and lose some pay or sometimes be sent to detention. And in that situation, we don't have a lawyer present. So I would give advice from my office as to the evidence and the charge and what the CO needs to decide. But it's for them to decide, guilt or otherwise. But there's no lawyer to represent the accused. and There's no lawyer representing the prosecution. So, so that's quite different to, uh, to the magistrate's court. And so in that sense, then, would it be fair to say that it's quite easy to find yourself in front of a court-martial? If you're service personnel, it's not something that's extremely rare. Um, I, I don't know. I don't, there's not that many court martials that take place. I don't have the exact figures, I'm afraid, but there's not that many that take place. Most issues will be dealt with by the CO, unless it's an offence that has to go up to court martial, um, and that that then gets looked at by director of service prosecutions and and his team. But most offences are low level and are dealt with by the commanding officer. And just because I've, you know, I've, I've done BPTC and, and everything else and just never come across the procedures and, you know, what's involved within court martial. What part of your, what point of your career did you learn all this? When I first stepped in into a court martial. Um, really? So, so you, you just did normal BPTC and a, yeah. and, and a normal pupillage and then it was at that point that it was like, okay, now I need to learn everything that's relevant to yeah. my specific job. I picked up a case, um, an aggravated vehicle taking case, direct from pupillage. As soon as I'd finished, I, I was back in uniform. I was in a court martial within two weeks, and it was a it was a baptism of fire. It, it was very different, but I've then spoken to to my seniors, and we've put together a package to train people coming out of pupillage, because I think I could have done with with maybe going and visiting one first. But um, but yeah, it, it was very different, that's for sure. And so, I mean, potentially then, there, there could well be an argument that there's potentially a gap in that sort of training and, and learning before sort of having to step into the role. And, you know, there could well be an argument that perhaps BPTC providers could look at potentially providing some sort of module or insight into the court-martial procedures for those who are interested in going on to specialise in military work? It, it would be um, it would be really interesting for people. And, and I think with the way that BPTC is changing and the other options that are available for people to learn, um, I, think it, I think it's a good idea. What may be more likely to happen, because each, each inn has got military members, is I imagine that the, the inns could maybe have a little talk by one of us to introduce people to to the differences in our jurisdiction because it is something that um that people should want to do if they're criminal practitioners because it's interesting and it's different absolutely and i suppose for anyone listening to this podcast right now that's maybe thinking that this is a point of interest that they they would love to attend something a seminar or a, a webinar or a training session on this issue should should get in touch with the in and, and let us know and i suppose this this podcast and the point of these discussions is to engage members and engage prospective students and to try and find out the ways in which we can improve access that's what this is all about uh, so if there was any opportunity for you or another military personnel to come and speak to people and sort of open up that door then that's then that's a success of, of this conversation indeed and so 
John Paul, my final question on this podcast is always, do you love your job? I, I do. I, I absolutely do. And that's from that's from the, the civilian aspects of the bar to to the military bar. You can't do this job if you don't love it, in my opinion. And I and I do. I've never had anyone say that they don't love it. So that's that's really great because, you know, we, we want positive vibes on this podcast. <laughs> Um, and so finally then, just what would you say to anyone thinking about a career as a military barrister? How, what would you say in terms of words of encouragement? How do you go about getting started? Where should you be looking for research and assistance? So um, if people are already studying um, for the bar, then the, Ar- the Army and the Air Force take people that are trained. So once you're a qualified barrister, they will look to recruit that way. If you're interested in the Navy, then you actually have to join the navy first and and although there are people that have d- that have been to the bar before joining the navy it's probably better that you you go to the navy before legal studies so it all depends at what stage of training you're at but there are options out there the training's good the support's great it saves you an awful lot of money uh, certainly if you're going to the naval route but i think the one thing i'd say to anybody is don't discount yourself because of background or any fears that you might not fit in. A bar is an incredibly all-encompassing environment, a great group of people, and the ends are fantastic. And and if you put your mind to anything, you can achieve it. John Paul, thanks so much for joining me. It's been so interesting to hear about your practice. And um, I hope that everything goes well until you retire, and then hopefully I'll bump into you someday in private practice. <laughs> Thank you, Alana. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at RaisingTheBarGI.